Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Emerson famously said, society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. My guest today says things have gotten a lot worse since Emerson uttered those words over a century and a half ago. His name is Robert Twigger. We last had him on the show to discuss his book, Micromastery. That's episode number 528, if you want to check that out. Today, we discuss a book he wrote 20 years ago called Being a Man in the Lousy Modern World. We begin a conversation discussing how the modern world infantilizes men so they're easier to control and whether Robert thinks things have changed since he initially published the book. We then dig into the four factors Robert says need to be in place for a man to feel like a man and why experiencing these qualities has become a lot harder to do in the present age. We then discuss what Robert did to counter the currents of modern malaise like hiking the Pyrenees Mountains and learning a martial art and whether doing those things actually made him feel manlier. We enter a conversation with what men can do to start fighting back against the conspiracy against their manhood. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash twigger. All right, Robert Twigger, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always, always glad to to be to be talking to the art of manliness. <laughs> well, we had you on the show uh, last year to talk about your book Micromastery, and that's episode number five twenty eight. For those who want to check it out, it's all about learning new skills by thinking small. It's a really great episode; is a fan favorite. But we're going to talk about a book you wrote twenty almost twenty years ago. It's called Being a Man in the Lousy Modern World. So tell us, what was the impetus behind this book? The real impetus was at that time, so I was writing that in, I don't know, sort of 1999 or something like that, exactly 20 years ago. There was a whole spate of adverts in which men were portrayed as sort of dorks and patsies, and the women were all smart and sassy. They were often, it was often that there were commercials in, in people's homes, you know, and it was the dorky husband who couldn't do anything. And and the wife was in control. And I just thought, this is just sending such a stupid wrong message. <laughs> so it was kind of anger. And then it sort of all kind of spiraled out from there. So I just started to look at what the role of men was in, a, in, the, in the lousy modern world. And then you, the way you wrote this, you sort of contrasted, you're, you had a son that was coming. Yeah. And you contrasted that trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man in this world and then contrasting all these adventures, you try to go on to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, the other strand in the book was using, because my previous uh, couple of books had been these adventures, but I had all these leftover stuff that I'd done because I was writing for kind of adventure travel pieces for magazines. And uh, so I had all this, these, this, this material. And uh, I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to use it. None, each adventure itself probably wouldn't have justified a book, so I wove that in, and it became because the adventure seemed part of being a man. You know, it seemed like a man who shunned any form of adventure. Always, I guess it was because adventure called forth the need for courage, and I knew that that courage was was a key key part of it. And, and you can, I mean, it was funny the con- the contrast between like you getting ready for the the arrival of your son. It was sort of like a day in the life of just a regular suburban guy living in the Western world, you know, barbecues. And you're kind of like, ah, the way you described it is like, this is, this is not it. Yeah. I mean, and I, I might, I wanted to make it honest and there's a sort of <laughs> problem because the kind of language you use to describe adventures is it doesn't suit describing <laughs> relationships and about, you know, what you feel about your kids and all that sort of thing. So it was a fine line to 
to draw. I also didn't want to, to just, you know, burrow into total sentimentality because, you know, before your kids are born, I mean, what can you feel? You, they just arrived, you know, <laughs> you don't know what they're going to be like. So it was, it was tricky. It was tricky ground. But as you say, yeah, it was, it's half the, that theme through the book, which I keep going back to, which is as the day progresses, that's the kind of driving force. And it's kind of like a micro adventure in itself, but uh, it's, it's Mr. Suburbia and my life is Mr. Suburbia and I'm just not, not sort of happy with it. So what is it about the lousy modern world that you, uh, you felt like that makes manliness feel obsolete? Like you feel like it's not suited for men. Yeah, I mean, there's so many strands here, but I mean, the, the, I mean, just coming from the top, it's, it's got to be that we have so many prosthetic devices, computers, cars, things that actually take out the physical aspect. And if there's, there are many differences between men and women, but I mean, the most obvious one is there's a physical strength difference. So if you're not actually having to use your physical strength at all, you're different from, you know, most men that have come before you in history. So there's, there's that side, there's the skill aspect, even small skills like learning to light a fire, which my dad used to do, you know, lighting a fire in the house, even things like fixing the car she did. I can't even fix my own car now because I don't know, don't know how to do the codes into the computerized bit. I mean, it's, it's kind of endless, really, the, the way we, be, we become so impotent and, and we're just kind of like living like kings in this, in this world of, of largely electronic backup. Well, and I think that one of the points you make that I thought was really incisive is that the modern world does a great job of keeping us like children, even as adults. Like as you said, you can't even fix your own car because there's like a computer that you have to be able to program and you have to be licensed to do that change. And, and you make this point that, uh, that children are easier to control than adults. And it's kind of, you, you make the, you could some would say a cynical conclusion that, well, well, that's what corporations and governments want. They want us to be easily controlled. Well, yeah. I mean, it may not be, I don't think there's some kind of conscious uber mind who's saying that let's, let's infantilize our entire population, but it, it just seems to work out better that way. So maybe there's some sort of evolutionary imperative at work in, inside corporations and big organizations that gradually the solution that infantilizes the, the workforce seems to work better. So you kind of by increments move towards that position and it's generally the case yeah i mean even the police you know when when for example somebody stands up and defends themselves against a mugging there's always the the warning from the police the police say don't do this in future um uh, <laughs> it's a dangerous thing to try and defend yourself at the same time as the re newspaper report is saying oh what a great thing the 78 year old guy fought off the mugger so this, this constant message that you're, you're better off just, just being like a kid, really. But the insidious thing is that because of all these advances, like, you know, things are cheap. We've got all this technology that, you know, basically gives us the world at our fingertips. It makes us feel like we're in control, but sometimes we're really not in control. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a weird idea of control, isn't it? It's a bit like, I mean, we, we already had it today. When the computer works, you, you're apparently in control. As, as soon as it doesn't work, you discover the exact limitations of your control. If you can't fix something, how much can you say you're in control? I mean, I think being able to fix stuff is, is, a, is a key part of being a man. And when we live in a world where we can't fix things very easily, maybe we're just going along on someone else's ride. Well, yeah, I guess yeah, Emerson's right. He said that society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. 
Well, yeah. I mean, that was what, 150 years ago, something like that. Yeah. It's got to be right, man. It's got to be. And so you wrote this 20 years ago and you were seeing this stuff then. Like, how, how have things changed? Have things gotten worse? Have it stayed the same? Has, have you seen things get better in some places? Yeah, it's, it's weird how things have changed. Um, in some ways, it's got, it's got a lot worse. Things that I could humorously joke about then, you can't really joke about now because you'll be, you'll be um, targeted as somebody, you know, that's not something you can joke about. Things have become off limits. So that's kind of worse. The better side is there's been a huge, there's been a growth in things. The art of manliness came along. There's been a growth in people becoming more aware of mental health issues of, of young men, which is a tr- tremendous problem. So those kind of knowing jokes, oh, it's the men, you know, the other day I was at a, a party and some, some woman sort of made some mocking comment about men with respect to mental health. And I, I was able to sort of pull the, it's a serious subject kind of thing. I didn't have to back off and, and take it. So there's been a bit of a pushback there. But it's, but it's at a big cost. You know, we've seen, I mean, I, I talk about it in the book. I talk about how criminality is, is a kind of refuge. It's like the last refuge of masculinity for many men. I mean, if you haven't got much imagination, you can't get yourself off and do a, a dangerous or, or interesting adventure. You, you, you're probably drawn to criminal behavior. So, you know, that's, we've seen a massive or increasing rise in, in criminality and, you know, that, that kind of area and, and sp- spill over into mental health issues. So, so in that sense, worse. It's, it's cr- pretty similar though. So uh, in the book, you lay, out, you, you, you lay out four factors that you think need to be in place for a man to be considered a man. So this is, again, this is what you said 20 years ago. That might, this yeah. might have changed, but yeah. what, what, are, what were those four factors that you, that you saw? So the four factors were killing a beast, courage, courage is one, ability to you know, so skills, you know, there were basic skills that, that, you know, seemed to be involved with being a man and passing a rite of passage. You know, that's, that's something that I circle in the book, which is that men seem to have the need to have undergone some kind of test of difficultness or dangerousness. And it's a before and after, and you see it characterized in, you know, even things like a, like a bar mitzvah or other rites of passage after which you are a man. It's a ritual. And I think that, if anything, that's, I mean, just to sort of move on a bit from those four characteristics, that's one of the key issues of the, um, of the book is that this lack of ritual in our society means the transition from a, from a boy to a man is blurred or, or never even exists. So, and I think rituals are the way we, we make transitions and we've, we've lost sight of that. Well, and we, we sort of still have rituals, but as you point out in the book, they're, they're sort of watered down. Yeah. Yeah. There's things like, you know, pass your driving test, you know, graduate high school, graduate college, college, yeah, get your first job. Yeah. Yeah. And they're lame as hell. I mean, you can't really look at yourself and think, oh yeah, I'm I'm on the, I, I can stand shoulder to shoulder with, you know, people who were in the first world war or, you know, single handedly paddled their way up the Amazon or something. So it's a sort of, you're going to just feel lame if you, if you accept cult, the culture. Right. They're, they're, they're male rites of passages for this lousy modern world. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you, you said this idea, like a, a rite of passage, it really can help a, a boy transition. That man. It has that help. It has those factors. Like there's an element of risk to it, of danger, where you have to display courage. You have to display fortitude. And lacking that, it's just, it, it doesn't, it's not, it's not transformative if there's no risk involved. 
yeah, I, I think that that's the it just sharpens things up and and the ability to assess risk is probably a big part of it. I mean, I had I know this guy, a good friend. And he told me he's going off to Pamplona to party. And I said, well, you've got to run the bulls if you're going to go to Pamplona. He said, no, no, that's just stupid. That's stupid. You know, that's kind of like the lousy modern world speaking. You know, you're, you're like Mr. Sensible. And of course, running the bulls has risks. And, and if you're drunk, the risks are higher. But, you know, you can assess those risks and decide whether you're going to do it or not. Otherwise, don't go to Pamplona. Because otherwise, you're borrowing the, the, the sort of the kudos of, of Ernest Hemingway and all the people who went there and you're just going there for a big kind of piss up and that seemed to be kind of like you know another problem you know but the problem itself is not the danger it's the unwillingness to assess it because again that's a kind of self-reliance so i'm not saying do dangerous things for the sake of it to be stupid i mean there are plenty of people who do that and get some of them get killed what i'm saying is develop the skill to assess risk don't sort of just offload that skill to you know looking on the internet and someone tells you oh, it's dangerous or something well, let's talk about, let's delve deeper into this courage because you, you, you kind of, you got philosophical about this, like trying to figure out what is courage because there's some people who look courageous, and like Aristotle, the philosopher grappled with this idea. It's like, how can you tell if someone's really courageous, right? It could just be like they're mm. crazy mm. and they don't feel fear and they just would just do crazy stuff. So there's, I mean, are they really courageous? So how, what's your assessment of that? Well, I think, yeah, Aristotle does mention no courage by its absence, rather than by its presence. That's one thing. You talking to people who served in the army in in dangerous situations, it's courage isn't is not that rare. You know, there are, you know, most people, given them given the right kind of backup, will be courageous. So it's 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 not something we should feel that it's like a really rare quality. It's 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 a, it's pretty available to everybody. But I think everybody needs to to be able to test test themselves in a number of situations because you're right that mere bravado can look like courage unless someone has felt the consequences you know i mean i in the book i talk about this climbing where i was when i was younger did climbing i never had any concept of risk i fell off and broke a cracked some vertebra in my it cracked a couple of vertebra and then i realized <laughs> there were consequences and i stopped being as crazy and in fact i didn't really do much climbing after that so i kind of realized that maybe I wasn't that courageous when it came to, to heights. So it's finding those, I think that courage is, is an exploration of finding those, those points where you push yourself. And, and again, it's a sort of self-knowledge thing that without putting yourself in those d- difficult situations, you won't get that self-knowledge. So maybe even more than courage, what we're looking at here is, is knowing yourself and knowing what your limitations are. Because I think, as I said, most people do have have courage and they are sort of a natural human characteristic. And I think one of the problems of the the lousy modern world, as you put it, is that we don't have that many opportunities to display courage. Like you have to like often proactively go seek it. You know, in times yeah. past that it would come to you. You had to display courage for whatever reason, because the, the world was a dangerous place, but now it's so safe. You have to go look for it instead of it finding you. Yeah, you do really. I mean, it, there are plenty of opportunities for, showing that you're stoical in the modern world for showing that you can put up with awful shit over a long period but courage sort of find out the full kind of topography of courage i think you do need to be in in situations which demand quick thinking as well as kind of like just endlessly putting up with something and for that yeah you you, you probably have to seek well you do have to seek it out i think i think you have to get a, either into the wilderness or you have to 
you know, deny yourself the normal creature comforts and find, find a bit of a challenge. Well, let's talk about this idea of being skilled as a component of manliness. I thought it was fun. This was fun reading this because, you know, I'd read your book, Micromastery, and we talked about it, and this was 20 years later. So it was interesting to see your thinking of, of skills being an important part of being a man, you know, even 20 years ago. So what, what is it about being handy that you think makes a man admirable? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's the hands. Yeah, it's, it's, it's using our hands. You know, I think that... Uh, we know that there's something associated with it. I always remember my grandfather, who was very—I mean, he—he'd kind of—he—he he, originally—he ended up as an engineer, but he'd started as you know doing manual work, building walls and and using all kinds of hand tools. He had these really—he was not a big guy, but his hands were big and strong, and that we feel it in the old handshake. You know, why do we have such a, such a store by having a, a bone crushing handshake? It's because it kind of means something. It means that you can. You can handle weapons. You can you can make things. You have the skill to be useful. I think it's it's all about a, a, a utility factor. Nobody wants to feel useless, and I think that this connection in the in the lousy modern world between people not finding meaning and people being very very lazy and not getting off their butt is connected to feeling useless. So if you have skills, hand skills, you are useful, and therefore you will work and you will find meaning. So. They're all kind of deeply connected. And we know that there's, you know, parts of the brain connected with, you know, getting hand skill are really sort of, if you can use this term, ancient parts of parts of our cognition. You know, this is not a, it's not a recent development. So I think it's tapping into something that's that is ancient and valuable. And yeah, I mean, even even Neanderthal man, even proto-humans were 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 adept at hand skill so it seems like a, a, a an essential essential thing to to master and it's one of those ways of like becoming more competent is one of those ways you can rebel against this conspiracy against your manhood yeah i think it i think it really is i think it's 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 a way of it's, it's very satisfying as well you know the idea of you know you can go into the wilderness and start a fire without using a lighter and petrol, you know, if you can use a, a make a bow drill and start a fire like that. I mean, there's huge growth in survival, which we've seen. I mean, the being a man thing, it, would, it already had started in the 90s. But in the last 20 years, we've seen a massive growth in bushcraft and survival. And YouTube has been a huge, a huge help there in spreading all kinds of skills. It's now really quite easy to get quite arcane skills, which you had to go on special courses to learn in the past. You can access them through YouTube. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right, so let's talk about this idea of the ability to kill man or beast. So what's going on there? I mean, I think, I mean, I think the point you made is that it's something that people, I think, tacitly accept as being, you know, a part of being a man. It's like if you're able, if you have the capability to do violence, but they're dodgy about it. Like they don't like to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's dodgy ground because you you know you're entering a, the area of the criminal in, in in a modern culture. But if you go back to traditional societies, most of the rites of passages were either you killed a lion or or some some dangerous beast, or you killed a member of, of another tribe. But not in the sort of psychopathological warfare of the 20th century. It was probably some kind of raiding warfare, and even tribes like the Nagas, the, you know, these headhunters in in the Burmese Indian border, I, you know, I spent some time with you. If you ran away, 
you weren't considered a coward. But if you got killed in a raid, you were given a dishonorable burial, which is quite interesting. So it limited warfare, but it allowed people the chance to 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 get involved. Sometimes, of course, people were killed in that in those environments, but that it, it, the numbers were far far less than the vast numbers that have been killed in the in the twentieth century. So we can't really boast that our system is more humane or more manageable. So I think that that gets rid of that objection. But the hard part is to, you know, to, to say that that is an aspect, the potentiality of, 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 of killing somebody. Perhaps the only way around it is to talk about defence, you know, that you are prepared in a situation to put yourself in a, a difficult situation and be competent to, to, to protect somebody, even if it meant dispatching somebody. It does. It is. It is borderline psycho, though. So that's <laughs> that is the, that is always going to be the problem. And I think the way around it is to think of this as a skill, which is a kind of bridging between the sort of the past and the present. That if you are, if you believe that you couldn't in a certain situation, if your family was threatened and you had to defend them, if you believed you you would just walk away and let them be killed and you wouldn't do something about it, then there's something missing. You know, I think that you need to have that potential and, and that skill to be able to do that. And probably it's more of a willpower thing. And it's nothing to be particularly proud of because, you know, thousands of people in this world are going around killing people with, you know, without any thought. You know, a friend of mine told me that he he was in Somalia as war reporter. And, and when he decided that the game was getting a bit dangerous was when a kid, you know, we're talking about a 10-year-old kid pointed at a Kalashnikov and just pulled the trigger because it was unloaded. So... Or, or the bullet jammed or whatever. Anyway, he was lucky. But that the ability to just, you know, blow somebody away is not some huge, great skill in that sense. But if you are a, a rational, calm, normal, and you're not an unhinged human being, then then it's quite a leap. So maybe what we're edging towards here is if if you are someone who is repelled by the idea of killing and you're normal in that sense, you should make that effort to comprehend it. And I suppose that's what I'm saying, but if you're the sort of person who who just can't wait to go and stab somebody, then then you're obviously a psychopath, and we're not talking about you. So I think that the the perspective of the book was really aimed at that thoughtful, perhaps rather suburban character who thinks this is an untenable and outrageous position, and maybe it's all about getting that mental flexibility and moving yourself into that position. And I mean, something. This is sort of an issue that's, that philosophers have grappled with. It's like, can can you really be considered kind or good if you don't have the ability to do like violence or bad or whatever? Right? It's like, is it any virtue that you don't even have the ability? Like, you don't have to overcome it. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So it's like, can you really be proud of your virtue if you had no opportunity to test it or like control it somehow? Yeah, I think that that you know that's that's a kind of another way into it, and I think that's a a good way of looking at it. That you may be overfocused on those virtues, and you might not understand that. Well, perhaps they need to be defended in some way, and that they may go hand in hand with with allied virtues. I mean, thinking I'm thinking of things like courage and generosity. I've often noticed that people who are very generous are often courageous, and actually, if you read in sort of you know traditional type psychology, they're considered to go hand in hand so if you want to build your courage build your generosity so there are some some sort of links maybe at a deeper level between more passive virtues and and the more kind of 
outgoing, aggressive virtues or, or borderline vices, depending on how you look at them. Well, you, you make this distinction too between men being either passive or active. And I think that, that goes to what you were just saying there. Like men are, I think there's, we have this idea that men should be active instead of passive. And I mean, what does that look like for you in the, yeah. in the well, when it plays of, out? One of the things I, I regret not doing in that book was not using the yin-yang distinction which of course was fairly well known, but it wasn't really mainstream. And now I think it is more mainstream. And it's one of the better, one of the things that has definitely happened over the last 20 years is a lot of the concepts that were a bit borderline then are totally mainstream. Brain plasticity, totally mainstream. Use it or lose it. You know, the idea that if you don't practice these skills, you'll lose them. All of these things are now mainstream. And one of them was yin and yang. And I think that that's the passive active thing, the sort of yin characteristics I mean, you know, in, in the sort of Eastern philosophies, you know, things things always have an yin and yang element, and it depends on where on the spectrum you are. And I think this, they don't necessarily map perfectly onto male and female, but definitely men are more on the yang end of the spectrum, and women in general are more on the yin end of the spectrum. And there's a bunch of characteristics that are yin and yang, and passivity is a more of a yin characteristic. Which doesn't mean it's better or worse, it's just a a characteristic. And um, so I, I definitely think that men are more on the yang end and therefore need to do more active stuff. But another point you make in your book is that the lousy modern world or soft suburban existence can often take men who are, have that active stance towards the world and then turn them into, like they become like, they're just sort of like guppy fish. They start out male, young, and then when they get older, they turn into females. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that was, that was my great theory that I thought would be taken up, but it, people just kind of like completely ignored it. But yeah, I thought that the the sort of traditional polarity, societies seem to need to organize themselves into polarity, and maybe that reflects the yin-yang thing. And in, in most cultures, it's male-female, but we now have, have evolved a young-old polarity. So you're kind of young until you're about 38, and you start making all these references to getting older, and then you suddenly adopt all these kind of kind of timid, older characteristics that are quite yin. And so they, they're sort of more like old-style feminine characteristics, but you can't call, call them that now. So it's now just what older people do. So, so that was – but I think there are all sorts of interesting possibilities. Like I do think if you, if you, if you trap an active person in a, in a controlled environment, then they become – focused on so on i mean we see a growth in not asperger's syndrome per se but sort of characteristics asperger type characteristics you know listing involvement deep involvement in sort of this sort of hobbies and and i wonder if that's a reaction to to being kind of trapped in a in a non-active environment you tend not to see that in tribal groups which still go out hunting and roaming around and generally being kind of hunter-gatherer types. You don't see that same sort of nerdy kind of behavior, which may be a kind of reaction to being sort of penned in. Well, I mean, that's another thing we've done in our lousy modern world. We've taken being active, sometimes the ext- like the extreme forms of being active, and we said, well, that's a pathology. Like they've got ADHD. We're going to give you some medicine for that because, again, it's all about control. Like We want to control people. Yeah, I think that that's certainly true. I mean, if you look at the school, school is a uh, is only tangentially about education. I mean, it's really about 
socializing people to, to function in, in this world that's, that is very that does demand a high, a high level of submission to in certain areas. I mean, one of the shocking things I found going around a prison in Scotland where I gave a, a talk a couple of years ago, and I reminded me of school. I mean, in not in a bad way, even in kind of a good way, because the, the guards were really trying to help the prisoners in a good way. And and I was teaching, I was talking to some of the good prisoners who hadn't sort of, you know, messed up. So they were allowed to listen to my talk. And the, the whole thing was like a hardcore, grim version of school. So it shocked me. And I realized, in other words, those prisoners had just been trained for this environment. This is what they knew by going to school. So, I mean, this is, I'm not saying that's the only function of school, because obviously people do learn things, but they they could learn them a lot more efficiently in, in another way. We know that. But that's not the big issue. The, the issue is that society needs to control all, all these people. They can't have them just running around. And just observing that doesn't mean to say that I'm proposing that we disband all these things, but it's just about developing that awareness. And having that awareness doesn't mean that you are automatically opposed to those institutions. I mean, I think that's one of the things I was trying to do in the book is to build a sense of, you know, have be able to hold those slightly contradictory positions in your brain at the same time. Don't don't uh, assume that you have to be either one thing or the other. And again, you know, like the people they're often trying to control are boys. It's like, I mean, usually, yeah, I yeah. mean, usually the schools are, are what the research says. The way the school's set up, it's suited for girls, boys. You know, some do okay, but then some boys don't do well at all in it because there's just so much. There's no flexibility. They like to be active, and they don't get that at school. Yeah, I mean, there are just a hundred ways that you could improve it, and that we probably go off in a complete tangent. But you're you're right. You know, we human beings were not meant to sit motionless or not hardly moving in one seat all day long you know it's just it's just not what humans are supposed to do and to, to expect people to do that it's just it's just kind of it's kind of lunacy so you talk about in this this lousy modern world like we don't have these opportunities to show male attributes the, the courage the ability to be skilled like you have to go out and find it like what are some of the stuff that you did to go display this stuff. And like, were you, did you, were you trying to create a rite of passage for yourself with all these, these activities you did? I think what I was trying to do was emulate people who'd come before me. I, I, I wanted to, to, you know, I knew that people had fought in wars. I knew that people had gone on expeditions and I'd read books about them. And I thought we've got to live up to that. We can't just, just assume that things were great in the past and we've just got to, you know, all be wimpy. Nowadays, so there was, it was a conscious trying to sort of to emulate people in the past, and but starting on a really small way because I was quite a timid guy. <laughs> I'm not a sort of Superman who just jumped off. So I, I started. I mean, I think the first thing is this: doing a long distance walk in in the Pyrenees. So walking alone, about 700 kilometers along this couple of trails that that connect the Atlantic with the Mediterranean, and that was a big deal for me because it was, you know, self-reliance, you know, some slightly scary situations when I got lost, but, you know, it wasn't beyond the ability of almost anybody to do. And then that gave me the, the impetus to go to Japan and study this martial art. And I'd always known that I wanted to do a martial art. I just not found a situation where I could do one and actually progress and get better because I wasn't that good at it. And then when I got to Japan, I realized you could do it absolutely full on and full time, five hours a day, five days a week, 
And that's when I began to properly progress and achieve that sort of bucket list tick, which, you know, get a black belt was, had always been a kind of, you know, there's kind of an overlap with the bucket list, I suppose, here. But so I'm a big believer, or wish list, I think it's better to call them wish lists. Making a wish list of uh, achievements is, is, is no bad thing. And you also went bullfighting, or you? Oh yeah, cow, yeah, the bullfighting training. Yeah, cow. the cow, famous cow. Yeah, that was that came about through a, a men's magazine, a, a Maxim, I think. And England had a bullfighter called Frank Evans, sadly now dead. And he offered to train me, and it, he, I had to go up to Manchester, his town, and he had a. We went into the local school playground where he uh, he had a shopping trolley with a a bale of straw in it and that was the bull and I had to practice kind of stabbing it and you know lifting the the cloak and yeah and then we went out to, to Spain to uh, practice with a cow because you can't if you practice with a bull you have to actually dispatch the bull and I wasn't really going to do that so you you have to practice with a cow because then the cow's allowed to live and the reason why you have to dispatch the bull is that the bull will learn basically they don't want the bull to learn how to kill humans yeah better. yeah i mean they learn so fast in the 15 minutes that they're in there because they've been living on the range for two to four years so they're they've had a wonderful life they haven't been inside a horrid shed for six months and then you know stunned by one of those guns like they used in no country for old men none of that they've had a wonderful life and it's come to an end in 15 minutes and quite frankly if if that was the way i was going to go i wouldn't mind but yeah, they learn so much, they become very dangerous and they will, they will easily kill the next matador. So they're dispatched. But cows are considered to be less difficult, but of course cows learn too. <laughs> so they can be, they can be, they can be, there is a wild card and Frank himself had suffered some a, a terrible injury where a cow had pronged him right up the ass, punctured his bladder, but it had left no damage. So he, you know, it was an internal injury that had no external kind of damage so it was rather a touch and go nasty thing to happen and, that sounds uh, unpleasant though. it's, it's, it's sounds... a deeply unpleasant I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying not to laugh because it's a horrible <laughs> thing to happen to anyone but anyway yeah so yeah we went into it was a tiny cow but uh, still yeah pretty scary when it's coming coming full on at you and all you've got is a is a is a cape and a sword to protect you but uh, yeah it was that was a cool thing and uh kind of glad i did it and after you did all this stuff, like, did you feel changed? Like, did you feel like, I feel like a man? Or was it sort of like, uh, that was a letdown? I think, I was thinking, reflecting about this the other day, I was thinking, God, yeah, you've done some stuff. You're all right. I think it, experience has an odd effect on you that isn't explicit. So it doesn't, it doesn't come up as sentences in your head. It's just, does change the way you approach life a bit. It makes you, uh, those kind of experiences will tend to make you more confident in unusual situations, you'll just think, ah, oh, this isn't so bad. So that's good. So it gives you a, a it gives you a range in which to judge things and some skills which you might need. But it's it's not that you're not going to feel any different. I think that's the kind of thing when you're a kid, you always think, oh, I'm going to feel different. You're just the same, you know, you're still you, but you you're less anxious and you're you're more yeah, you're less anxious really and you're more you're more willing to have a go at something. So it's a sort of, it increases your, your range and your, the, the possibilities that you have, but you're, you won't, you won't feel like Clint Eastwood inside, whatever he feels like inside. And have you talked to your son about this stuff as he's gotten older? Uh, not really. I mean, that's the other thing. I'm, I don't think I'm a great dad. 
So, you know, it's like an okay one. I've, 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 uh, yeah, I kind of brought it up, but mostly what I pontificate on is, is treated as, uh, you know, marginal, marginal interest in our household. So, um, <laughs> so that's always the problem, but I've, I've, the books are there for them to read. My daughter read it. I think she, she gets it better. That's the other paradox. Of course. Yeah. You, you spend all this effort thinking you're talking to your son and you may well be talking to your daughter. So things work in mysterious ways. What did she get about the book? Like, what did what did she say? Like, what connected with her yeah, on that? She, yeah, what she got, and I think I can see it. Is she's tolerant of all kinds of different. She can see uh, what masculine behavior is important and what isn't, and what is just like a like what men do. She's used to to. She's not one of these women who demands men to all kind of act as if they're you know, downtrodden and passive. She's, she's more able to respond to what they're actually saying or doing rather than what she might imagine they are. Cause there are quite a lot of, especially if you go to college now, there are kind of a lot of, you know, behavioral norms that men are supposed to adhere to, which obviously not everyone does. Yeah. They you, there's like classes now when you get, you start your yeah. freshman year where you have to talk about like what you're, how you're supposed to do and not do. Yeah. I know it's kind of, it's so weird. It's making this whole area of tacit communication where you just, you, you, you know, you, you should know already. It's kind of trying to make it all explicit. And it's, it's a really bizarre kind of uh, move. But yeah, I mean, I'm not envious of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, you're not, so you're not there. But like, what do you, what do you think men who are listening to this podcast can start doing to experience what you call enhanced male being, like what what are the takeaways? Apart from buying the book, apart from um, buying, is it even but, is it still yes. in print? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely out. That's the thing. The imprint thing doesn't. You know, there's there's quite a few uh, secondhand copies out there, especially if you get to the Amazon UK site. So I think you can still get it. It may still be in print. I, I don't know because it was on a reading list at, at British Columbia and the Simon Fraser University. It was on their masculinity course as a, as a kind of academic text for a while. So. I think it still has a life out there. You probably will be able to get a copy. But yeah, yeah, okay, that aside, what could you do? I think there's far more resources out there. And I think, I mean, I've got into this practical wisdom. There's this sort of website on University of Chicago. It's kind of movement, practical wisdom, which is sort of moving away from rules and incentives and trying to ground behavior in, experience and i think that that's a way of sidestepping compartmentalizing and labeling you know which i think is you know it's part of the has been part of the problem but yeah in general i would say you've got to honor your yang i mean i say this to my friends i've got to yang up i mean the other day i was going to join this gun club and of course you know shooting guns in in the uk is it's pretty difficult but it's just a it's a yang experience go out shoot off a few rounds you know it's it's you know ultimately you may maybe you go hunting maybe you don't go hunting but it definitely clocks you up a bit more yang and you come out feeling a little bit more bit more alive and a bit more energized so i would generally say yang up find yang type activities chopping wood it's been shown that even if you're 80 years old you go out and chop wood your testosterone levels rise to that of a 30 year old i mean jogging won't do that for you you know, find out those activities that do do give you that kind of use aggression. I mean, aggression has a, has a function, which is to to use tools or weapons in a in a fast and efficient way. 
So you don't lose it. I mean, you, you've and don't necessarily get into all those kind of endurance sports like riding your bike for five thousand miles. You know, there's there's you you gotta have a, you gotta have a variety. I think of activities. Well, Robert, where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, I've got a, I've got a website, robertswigger.com, with about a thousand articles on it of all kinds of stuff. I mean, as as you know from the last chap, I'm a, I mean my 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 kind of the area I'm mainly into is polymathy, which is you know being skilled at many different things. I think that that my being a man thing was just a sort of subset of the the whole polymathic impulse, which I think is as men and women, I think we all need to to spread our wings and not be trapped into specialization. Well, Robert Twigger, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Been great. My guest today was Robert Twigger. He's the author of several books. The book we discussed today was called Being a Man in the Lousy Modern World. It's available on Amazon.com, but you got to go to the UK version of Amazon. It's not available in the States. Uh, also check out his website, robertwigger.com, and check out our show notes at aom.is slash twigger, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so in Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.